climbing that sort of work ladder maybe. Uh, they might be ambitious about their investments. People are ambitious about their family as well. Now for George, well we, we missed it right at the start, but he's ambitious about reading a book from, uh, what did he say, from beginning to end. How about that? That's, a, that's an ambition, isn't it? Um, it's biting into a block of cheese like it's an apple. That's what George is ambitious about. That sounds disgusting. Um, it's it's uh, staying out all night or going to a tractor pool. I don't know what a tractor pool is. Anyway, it's one of those American things. Yeah, maybe Tom knows about a tractor pool. Okay, here's a question for you then. A serious question. Can you be ambitious about God? Can you be ambitious for God? Now, Aussies tend to... Well, we, we, we tend to treat ambitious people with a degree of circumspect. That's a nice way of putting it, I think. Uh, they can tend to come across a little bit full of themselves, really ambitious people. Now, that's a bit of a pity because I think ambition is a good thing. There's, there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But what about with God? Can you be, amb- can you be ambitious for God? Is there such a thing as godly ambition? I reckon there is. I reckon there is. So can I invite you, if you don't have already, have 1 Timothy 3 open in front of you. Yeah, there's, a, there's an outline on your bulletin you would have received as you walked in. Uh, have that there as well. That'll help. Have that open in front of you. We're going to pray together and ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the, your word that you speak to us. Um, we pray that you'd help us to understand it. Help me to be clear. Help us to listen well and put your words into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 Timothy 3, and I'm going to have it open just over here as well. There we go. 1 Timothy 3, like chapter 2 last week, is about godliness. However, this time, it's, a, it's about godliness in the lives of appointed leaders in God's household. Rather, last week it was about godliness in the members. So just in 1 Timothy alone, if you've got your Bible open there, Paul devotes a great deal of space on this issue of leadership. So chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, we're going to look at that today. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. There's a lot of space when it comes, or a great deal of space on this issue of leadership. Why? Why is there so much time spent, why does Paul spend so much time on this issue of leadership in the church at Ephesus? Well, if you remember, it's because some of the church's leaders or aspiring leaders, they had been involved in teaching false doctrines, so false teaching. And more often than not, and and the church at Ephesus is no, uh, no exception, when false teaching arises, it's accompanied with ungodliness. Now, when Paul left Ephesus, he warned the elders in Acts chapter 20 of savage wolves, he calls them, who will come in and not spare the flock. And so Paul warned them, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples from them. People like, remember Hymenaeus and Alexander from chapter 1, who Paul actually had to remove from the church. And this poor behaviour of these leaders had damaged the reputation of the church and indeed the gospel. 
And so Paul's instructions to Timothy, to God's household, is to appoint leaders who are known for their godliness. That's his instruction. That's how we come to 1 Timothy 3. All right, you ready to go? So the structure of the passage is pretty simple, isn't it? He talks about overseas and then he talks about deacons. It's pretty straightforward. There are two types of church leaders. You can see them in your outline, overseers and deacons, and we'll define them in a moment. However, there's a bit of an overlap between the attributes of the two groups. You might have noticed that as, we, uh, as uh, Andrew read through it a moment ago. For example, um, both are not to indulge in too much wine. Both are to be sober-minded. Both will be people worthy of respect. So here's the way we're going to go about it. After asking a few important questions about who they are, what they do, overseas and deacons, then what we're going to do, we're going to combine them all and look at all the qualities together about, and, and think about Christian leadership. That's our direction. Rightio, two types of church leaders. The first one Paul gets into are overseers. There's our four questions we're going to answer. Who are they? Well, in the New Testament, overseers are also described as elders and sometimes as shepherds. In fact, actually, the terms are used interchangeably. Uh, interchangeably. For example, in Titus chapter 1, Paul uh, instructs Titus to appoint elders in every town adding that an overseer must be blameless. So he uses the word interchangeably like that. Uh, the same type of thing happened in Acts chapter 20, the passage we meant, look, looked at a moment ago in Paul's address, where he actually sent for the elders, but then he calls them overseers. So the, the words are interchangeable. Overseers and elders were, were older men uh, within the congregation. They should not only have life experience, but also Christian experience. And following up from last week, because overseers or elders were to have the ability to teach in their local gathering of men and women, they were to be men. Uh, if you missed last week's sermon, go back this week and listen to last week's sermon. It's really important. What do they do? Well, as overseers, you guessed it, they oversee. So one, they watch over. Now, 1 Peter describes these leaders as shepherds who are told to watch over their flock who are under their care. Now, we've got to make sure the analogy is right here. The analogy of shepherds here is first century, all right, first century Palestine, that sort of area, not the sheep grazers of today. So uh, back in those days, a shepherd would know their sheep by name. They would protect their sheep. They would guide them by walking amongst them, almost living with them. Uh, today's sheep grazers are a little different, aren't they, with helicopters shining, you know, you know, hovering above and motorbikes and the rest of it. There's no sense here that an overseer is to be remote from the organisation. So nothing like those generals in the First World War on the, on the battlefront, you know, who are kilometres away. No, no, not quite different here. They're actually uh, hands-on serving within the church, serving amongst the believers, uh, steering the ship, if you like directing the work of the gospel. But not only are overseers or these elders to watch over the church, but themselves too, for the benefit of the church. So Paul says to Timothy, if you've got your Bible open, look over to chapter 4, verse 16. It's the same page in my Bible. 4, verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So they have to watch over themselves as well. Now, what do they need to fulfil this role? That's our next little question up there. Uh, well, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 outline a number of attributes, don't they? 
But the distinctive characteristic of the overseer, the elder, the church pastor, if you like, as opposed to the deacon, we'll get to deacons in a moment, is the ability to teach God's word. They ought to be gifted in this. So it's not actually for all men. Some men are. That's okay. Overseers were to lead from the pulpit a ministry of the word. And as we touched on the last couple of weeks, that's what's at the heart of their authority, what they're doing. They're teaching the word of God. In God's church, teaching the word comes with authority. Now, why would anyone want to do this? Why would anyone want to do this? Especially in the light of the type of scrutiny some Christian leaders receive, uh, which is a good thing, by the way, and we'll get to that in a minute. Why would we want to do this? Well, let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1, if you've got your Bible there. Whoever aspires or sets his heart to be an overseer desires a noble task. Or more literally, it's actually a good work. It's the same word we, we, we found in 2 verse 10 and 5 verse 10 where practical assistance to people in need is labelled as a good work. So for the apostle, spiritual leadership is seen like helping others in need as a good work. In effect, Paul is encouraging suitably gifted men to see such Christian leadership as a means of pleasing the Lord through their behaviour. So it begs a question, doesn't it, to Christian men? What do you aspire to? Uh, what are you ambitious for? Okay, let's go to the deacons. So the deacons, who are they? Well, first of all, the deacons are men and women. Let me tell you why I think that. Uh, and I'm not alone. Uh, verse 11 makes much more sense. If you look at verse 11, it makes much more sense in the context um, when the word is translated women, not wives. It's actually the same word in the original, in the Greek. So in verse 11, it should read, in, in the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Paul certainly speaks of female deacons. The old-fashioned word is deaconess. Um, we don't use that much anymore. But um, female deacons, uh, and he talks about them in, in Romans 16, verse 1. There's a, a one called Phoebe. Um, and it would be strange for Paul to mention deacons' wives in verse 11 and not elders' wives. I think he's referring to women as well. So both men and women can fulfil the role of deacon. What do they do? Well, literally, a deacon is one who serves. That's what it means. We'll come back to 3 verse 13 in a moment. That's a key verse. But they serve by serving the church. It's the same word used for those chosen in Acts chapter 6 to look after the food and other practical needs of the early church, therefore freeing up the apostles for prayer and ministry of the word. So being a deacon is not so much of an overseeing role, but simply one of service. So in other words, anyone can be a deacon. So in our church, um, I think a pretty good example in our church is uh, anyone who serves on parish council. That's one example. There's a few others, and I'll mention those in a moment. Having said that, though, parish councillors certainly have oversight, don't they, of the, uh, the church's money and buildings. Um, and they serve with the minister and the team as they do that. What do deacons need to fulfil this role? It's our next question. Verse 9, as opposed to the false teachers, they are to do this through keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. You see that? That's two things Hymenaeus and Alexander did not do. 
So they may not necessarily have the gifts of teaching, like an overseer, but they need to be the sort of person who could be trusted not to drop the ball, spiritually speaking. See, that's, that's the deacon. Now, why would anyone want to do this? Why would you want to do this? Well, let's have a look at it. Uh, why would anyone want to serve? It's an easier question, isn't it, really? But anyway, let's come with me to verse 13 I mentioned before. In verse 13, there's two results about serving in God's church. I wonder if you can see them. I'll read it again for us. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So serving results in a good standing amongst the church family. Now I take it that means a respect, an encouragement by their service to others. When I, I see people serving, whether it's at morning tea or a parish council or it's tidying up, vacuuming, whatever it might be, and list can go on and on. When I see people serving, I'm encouraged. I don't know about you, I'm really encouraged. I think that's what it's referring to, that type of thing. And, and I guess adding to this, if I was to look for a, an upcoming leader, so this is what I do when I look for ribs leaders, right? And John is the same. Um, well, he does it really now, not so much me. But when we look for leaders, I look for people who serve, who already serve, who are cleaning up in the kitchen, who are doing the sweeping up or packing chairs or whatever they're doing, vacuuming. That's what I look for. Uh, so... Let's look at another benefit, though. Another benefit of service, in verse 13 tells us, of, um, of serving God's household is a greater confidence and assurance in your faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, assurance in the faith in Jesus. The more you give out in humble service, I think the more you receive. So, friends, if you consider this your church, can I put it this way? Let's be ambitious about serving each other. I spoke earlier of the needs of morning tea. Um, another example might be yeah, as vacuuming. We need a few people more doing that. We need a few, few more people to clean the toilets. Um, that'll be a great idea. Uh, Crash roster. Got lots of little, like, young kids around. There's just some ideas. If you're short of ideas, come and talk to me afterwards. Talk amongst your friends. You can say to them over morning tea after you've waited for two hours for your cake. No, just kidding. It won't be that bad. Um, you can say to them, hey, I want to... Sorry, Brooke. It won't be that long, will it? No, it won't. It'll be great. Um, Poor Brooke, they cop, who else is on morning to this morning? Ah, oh, Val, all right, there you go. So you cop the raw end of the deal, really. Anyway, we'll see how you go, and we'll, we'll get lessons off you guys. Um, where was I? Anyway, um, no, I'm completely <laughs> forgotten. Doesn't matter. Serving. Um, if you consider this your church, be ambitious about serving. That's what I want to say. All right. Let's, uh, let's now turn to what really is Paul's focus, I guess, when it comes to Christian leadership. This, idea, this, this concept of, of character or godliness, and this comes against the backdrop of the ungodliness of the false teachers, remember. The key is that God wants to see people in Christian leadership who are clearly living under the lordship of Jesus. They trust and obey his word, and so they demonstrate this by godly behaviour. We're going to ask three questions as we explore the attributes of Christian leadership. Uh, how deep, how wide, how long? They're the three questions we're going to ask. All right, here's the first one. How deep? Um, that is, is the person's obedience to Christ thorough and deep or is it superficial and shallow? If we're going to appoint leaders... We're going to have to ask that question. 
Is there stability and maturity about their faith? Is Jesus ruling their life? Or are they likely to just sort of slip off the leash, so to speak, and run off? Well, there's a few key areas that Paul mentions. First one I think we just put under the heading of sex. Right? So if you've been asleep, you can wake up now. We're going to talk about sex. That's going to be good fun. Um, is uh, <laughs> Sorry, PDHP teacher started to take over there and I forgot my diagrams too. But anyway... Um, is this person's sexual desires under control? That's, the, that's, that's the, the deeper question, isn't it? Are they faithful to their wife if they're married? Uh, I don't think husband of but one wife is a reference to polygamy in that cult, culture. I don't think it is. Um, it's really just about faithfulness to your wife. Is it clear and obvious you are a one-woman man? Or in the case of deacons, is it clear and obvious you're a one-man woman? I got that right, didn't I? Yeah, I did. Okay. So sex, that sort of thing, uh, is important, and Paul lists that as an area of godliness. What about speech? That's another one that's mentioned too. Uh, in contrast to the, the malicious talk, the gossip, and controversies of the false teachers we read about, those in leadership in God's household are to have speech under control. They're to be temperate, self-controlled, not violent, and not quarrelsome, but building up others according to their needs. Alcohol gets a mention, doesn't it, in terms of godliness? So verses 3 and 8. Drunkenness leads to self, loss of self-control, which is something that must not characterise Christian leaders. Now, total abstinence is not required. Uh, it's, you, it's, you can be a Christian and you can drink, yes, alcohol. Remember Paul's rem remedy for Timothy's tummy aches in chapter 5, verse 20, 23? He says, if you're having these... Um, uh, what does he say again? Let's have a look. 5, verse 23. There it is. In the same way, good deeds are... Oh, that's, not, that's 25. Uh, stop drinking only water and use a little bit of wine um, because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. There you go. That's some good advice. I'm not quite sure how much of an expert uh, Paul was in in medicine, but anyway, uh, won't hurt. But the point is, is it clear and obvious to outsiders that you're not indulging in too much wine? That's the point. See, perceptions are important. Sometimes, even if you're having one beer or one drink, people are presuming that you're drinking. It's the culture we live in today, isn't it? Uh, friends, on plenty of occasions, I've decided not to drink at all I enjoy beer. Um, wine is wasted on me. Don't ever give me a bottle of wine. It's wasted on me. Uh, but I've decided not to drink at all because I was concerned that people would presume I'm a drinker. Like many others, drinking to get drunk. I don't want to harm the gospel with any hint of hypocrisy. All right, finally, thinking once more on this question of the depth of one's commitment to Christ, when we're thinking of appointing leaders or describing what the characteristics of leaders are, money gets a mention too. So rather than being a lover of money or pursuing financial dishonest gain, just like the false teachers who seem to have the understanding that religion could be a means of financial gain, it comes up in chapter 6, and by the way, that won't be the last last time we hear religious leaders see religion as a means to financial gain, sadly. Instead, Paul wants those in leadership in God's church to be generous with their money and possessions. That's why he mentions hospitality, uh, opening up your home to people, uh, looking after people in that way. He says too in verse 11 to be trustworthy in everything. 
Christian leaders will be like that too. That's our first question, how deep? Our next question is how wide? How wide? In other words, whether the person's faith is evident not just on Sundays, but whether, that, whether we can see their faith at work elsewhere, so maybe at home, at work, down at the club, on the footy field, whatever it might be. Is there a change in the person's public and then private life? Are they a 24-7 Christian? Or do they only just give God the leftovers? Is there transparency or hypocrisy? So Paul deals with these sorts of concerns by raising the issue of faithfulness to Christ in the home. So come with me to verse 4 and 5. Paul writes, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children household well. Now, I've spoken at length about this type of thing uh, previously, but I won't talk about it too much today. But let's, let's, let's pause just for a moment here, especially in the light of the challenges of not only church leadership but also raising children. Uh, let's, let's have a quick word of, con- of word of caution. Have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 15, if you've got your Bible there. 4, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect your gift which was given you through the prophetic... Oh, that's not 4 verse, that's 14. I'm struggling today. Verse 15. He says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. What do we learn out of that? We well, said that Timothy is encouraged to be diligent and that people would see his progress. In other words, Christian leadership is not about perfection, not about perfection at all, but it is about growth and progress. Same for everyone, isn't it? All right, I'm going to leave that point there and let's keep going on these attributes of Christian leadership. We've talked about how deep, we've talked about how wide, now how long. Well, what do we mean there? Well, this is in reference to those, well, those who have not been Christians for long should not be appointed to Christian leadership. That's the bottom line, how long. So in verse 6, Christian leaders should not be new converts Quite literally, it's the term. The term is newly planted. So think about a tree, a fruit tree. It's not easy to tell at this stage in their lives what, if any, fruit will grow if they're newly planted. We've got to wait and see. We've got to check them out. So perhaps Paul has in mind the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower? So how this person will receive the word of God, that's the, that's the seed going out. So will the plant grow and produce a crop? That's where it lands on the good soil. Or perhaps it will have no root. It lands on the path and no root in Jesus and in his word. And so when trouble or persecution comes, or when they get a bit of a pushback, a bit of pushback from being a follower of Jesus, well, they're throwing the talents all over. Uh, or perhaps they grow well at first, but then the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth come in and choke them out. Now, that's that other soil too. So how long is an important question? Paul's concern of the real possibility that new converts, newly planted Christians, being thrown into leadership positions and not lasting, or even becoming sort of puffed up in their own importance and pride. And Paul mentions in verse 7, I think it's a reference to Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15, if you're writing notes, Isaiah 14. Um, 
It's a reference to the devil who so arrogantly grasped for more and more and then soon fell. So I think he's having a, refer- a reference to that. He doesn't want that to be the path taken of new converts who are thrown into leadership. 3 verse 10 uh, tells us there's genuine need for testing. So the general rule is that when someone is appointed to a leadership position in the church, it should, be, it should come as no surprise. We shouldn't go back and go, oh, that's interesting. Wouldn't have thought that. Shouldn't happen. It should, come, it, it should be, ah, we've seen this coming for ages. Yeah. And that includes with outsiders. So I think 3 verse 7 alludes to this, the leader's reputation with those outside the church. It's the same idea as of being above reproach. We read in verse 2. Sorry we're jumping around, but I hope you're following. The leader ought to have a good reputation within the community so that the gospel is not hindered. Their appointment to leadership within the church is no surprise, and even to outsiders. So if outsiders see someone who's appointed as a, a warden or a parish councillor or they're a Bible study leader or the youth group leader, they too will say, oh yeah, that makes sense. They're a keen Christian person. I've heard about them. All right. When we boil it down, Christian leadership is not so much about gifts, although their ability to handle the word of God is essential. The focus here is on godliness and maturity in Christ. Godly character is a non-negotiable. It's what um, Scottish minister Murray McShane with a name like that, he's not going to be from Italy, is he? Um, anyway, Murray McShane was uh, referring to, this is what he said, he said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's what Christian leaders ought to be saying. Without character, without godliness, the teaching's not heard anyway, is it? So we need both in our church leaders. Okay. How do we respond to this? How do we respond? Well, I think there's two ways, and you can see them there on, the, uh, on your little sheet, I think, and I've got them up on the screen. The first one's pretty obvious. The next one's not as obvious. We ought to pray. We ought to pray for our church leaders. Now, friends, that's, that's not just me or Jono. It's good. You, you ought to pray for us, absolutely. You'll benefit from praying for us, by the way. That's a good way to put about it, think about it, isn't it? Um, no, we've got to pray for our small group leaders. We've got to pray for our ribs leaders, our, church, our kids' church leaders, really anyone serving in ministry. Pray that we'll communicate and be faithful to God's word. Uh, communicate that word clearly. And for all those serving, that they hold on to the truth of God's word. We need to pray for the fruits of the Spirit, especially love and self-control, to be um, particularly noticeable in their lives. We need to pray for the families of leaders, that their children will grow up respecting God's word. We need to pray for the reputation of our leaders in the community, so that nothing hinders the gospel being heard. Paul starts and finishes this letter by praying for God's grace, which is exactly what is required for both church members and church leaders. But I want to finish up by going back to this question of godly ambition. Okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 3 effectively is a list of godly attributes we should look for when we appoint leaders. That's fair enough, isn't it? And when you look at those attributes... Every one of those attributes is simply a characteristic of Christian maturity. It's just a characteristic of growing to be more like Jesus, of godliness. In a sense, the apostle is saying to the church at Ephesus, and God is saying to us through his apostle today, this is what Christian maturity looks like. You want to know what Christian maturity looks like? Here it is, right there in front of us. That's what it looks like. 
So be ambitious for that. So be ambitious for that. Men, young and older, aspire to be overseers. Men and women, young and older, aspire to be deacons who serve like Jesus. Is there such a thing as godly ambition? You betcha there is. We've just been reading about it in 1 Timothy 3, and that's what it looks like in practice. How about I pray and ask God to help us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Uh, we pray that we would, you, would, uh, you would help us to aspire to godliness, whether that means in, a, in leadership, in, in overseers or in deacons, whatever it might be, or just serving amongst your church here. We pray, Lord, that, um, that you would uh, help us with that. As we read, um, Father, in Philippians, that you would, you would fill us with your spirit as we, uh, as we do these things, as we serve you and serve your people in this, in this church. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Don't forget, if you want to ask a question, it'll follow up. You can always see me afterwards, but there's a little... Um, uh, you can tear off the slip from the bulletin and put it in the back there and we can spend a bit of time on that next week if you want to or come and see me during the week or after the service too. I think what